Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, our text this morning from Hebrews chapter 5 seems very strange and far removed from us. We don't understand the sacrificial system spelled out at Sinai. The book of Leviticus, for many of us, remains a closed book. Bulls and goats and blood. It sounds archaic, even barbarian. When the writer to the Hebrews later says that, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, our response is, duh, you figure? It is, however, ironic. This letter, which most believe was actually a sermon, was delivered for exactly the same reason from the exact opposite side of the question. It was written to a Jewish Christian audience. For them, it was Christianity that was strange and foreign and seeming to be pulled out of thin air. Baptism? The Lord's Supper? A crucified Messiah? Their Jewish friends and relatives were shaking their heads. (laughs) Come on back to the fold. Come on back to something that's solid and permanent and historical. Bring your offering of atonement. Let's go to Jerusalem for the Passover. Make your peace with God. Our text serves to connect these two systems by focusing on the high priest. He stands at the head, the pinnacle, if you will, of the Old Testament system of sacrifice. So also in Christianity, we have a new and even greater high priest. The role of high priest is spelled out for us at Sinai in the book of Leviticus. Our writer points out that every high priest was chosen from among men. He was one of us. The fact is clearly seen on the Day of Atonement. The very first sacrifice on the Day of Atonement is a bull. For what? For the sins of the high priest and his household, Leviticus 6.6. As the mediator between a holy and righteous God, he must first himself be holy in order to make intercessions, to make prayers for the people. And the high priest's humanity is also visible in our text. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. He can moderate his feelings, might be a better way to express that, because, towards those who are going astray, because he himself has gone astray. If not in this sin, then another. It was, after all, a real bull that died for a real reason, or rather reasons, real sins. It's helpful at this point to remark that pastors, too, are sinners, and we pray that you would also deal gently His sins atoned for, though, the high priest served as mediator between God and the people. Verse 1, he is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. That phrase, gifts and sacrifices, raises some controversy among the commentators. Is the writer talking about the, the three high pilgrim festivals of Judaism, Pentecost, Passover, and Tabernacles? Or is he referring to the daily service in the temple, the evening and morning sacrifices? We're not going to decide that question here, but looking at the daily service is instructive with regard to the priestly service as mediator. The daily sacrifice, the morning and evening, was enacted in four parts. The first was the sprinkling of blood from a male lamb against the altar as an act of atonement and purification. The second was a burning of incense in the holy place as an act of intercession. And that's where I'd like to stop for a moment, with the incense. It's out of vogue in this congregation, 
But listen to the words of Psalm 141. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, as the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. That's part of our words. It's part of our liturgy, right? It's not part of our practice, though. And that's okay. But the incense was actually a visible prayers of the church, prayers of the people ascending up on high to God. So the high priest was one of us, and he served as mediator, offering up incense, offering up our prayers to the heavenly throne. Yet Christ is an even greater high priest. He is truly one of us, like the Aaronic high priest. He was chosen by God. That's the purpose of those citations from Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Christ did not exalt himself. He lived a life of training, our writer says. He was placed into the office in his glorification. His humanity, however, is clearly evident in the manger. He is a God who cries and fusses and needs his swaddling bands changed, suckles at Mary's breast. The start of his ministry in all the synoptic gospels is punctuated by his temptation in the wilderness. But we often forget the day-to-day temptations that are common to all men, which, of course, were common to Christ himself. As the writer to the Hebrews said earlier in chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted, just as we are, yet without sin. Verse 8, he learned obedience through what he suffered. We read about that in Luke's account in the incident at the temple and when he was 12 years old, after which he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to him. That word submissive and the word in our text, obedience, both have the same Greek root. In our text, though, it actually includes the definite article. It's not just he learned obedience, but he learned the obedience. Jesus himself makes that claim in John 6. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In his suffering, Christ knew the height and the depth of human experience, our joys and our sorrows. We note the frequent use of the word compassion in the gospel lessons. He had compassion for the people as sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion for the widow whose son had died. He had compassion for the least, the last, and the lost. Truly, he was one of us. Yet Christ is also greater than us. He was human, yet he was also the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and that's evident in his miracles. Raising that widow's son, calming the storm, feeding the hungry. Mark reports that they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. His superiority is evident in the temptation. He never sinned. Theologians call this his act of obedience, doing the will of the Father. Recall that text from John 6. To be the perfect sacrifice for sin, he had to be without sin, to be blameless, in order that he might suffer. And what he suffered is far beyond what we can grasp. It's his passive righteousness. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, verse 7. This is the garden as he prayed and as his sweat became as great drops of blood. This is the cross as its terrors and torments turned the minutes to hours. This is the wrath of God 
for all sin, for my sin, for yours. Luther speaks of this high priestly role in a sermon in Psalm 110. But since, as these sacrifices demonstrated, God will not grant reconciliation and forgiveness without blood and death, the cross was the altar on which he, consumed by the fire of his boundless love which burned in his heart, presented the living and holy sacrifice of his body and blood to the Father, with fervent intercessions, loud cries, and hot, anxious tears. This is true sacrifice. Close quote. Himself the victim and himself the priest, as our communion hymn puts it. As our mediator, Christ brings us into identity with himself. The concept of identity is reciprocal. Recall Hebrews 4.15, where he identified with us in temptation. He knows what besets us, but it works the other way around as well. We identify with him. And the primary identity is in the cross, in his death. As Paul writes to the Romans, Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? But the grave could not hold him. Neither can it hold those who are baptized into him. His obedience, the obedience, earned our salvation. His resurrection declares, you are forgiven. John Lennox tells a story of touring Eastern Europe and meeting a Jewish woman from South Africa. She was there researching how her relatives perished in the Holocaust. Before a mock-up of the main gate of Auschwitz, she asked, What does your religion say about all this? Lennox writes, What was I to say? She had lost her parents, many of her relatives in the Holocaust. I could scarcely bear to look at the images, the photographs of the Mengele experiments, because of the sheer horror of imagining my own children. I had nothing in my life that remotely resembled, paralleled what her family had endured. But still, she stood in the doorway, waiting for an answer. Eventually, I said, I would not insult your memory of your parents by offering you simplistic answers to your question. What is more, I have young children. I cannot even bear to think about how I might react. I have no easy answers. But I do have what, for me at least, is a doorway to an answer. What is it, she said. I said, you know that I am a Christian. That means that I believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. I also believe that he was God incarnate, came into our world as Savior. That's what his name Yeshua means, Savior. Now, I know that this is even more difficult for you to believe. Nevertheless, just think about this question. If Yeshua is really God, as I believe he was, what was God doing on a cross? Could it be that God begins just there to meet our heartbreaks by demonstrating that he did not remain distant from our human suffering but became a part of it? For me, at least, this is a beginning of hope, and it is a living hope that cannot be smashed by the enemy of death. The story does not end in the darkness of the cross. Yeshua conquered death. He rose from the dead, and one day, he will finally judge. He will access everything in absolute fairness, righteousness, and mercy. There was silence. She still stood there, standing in the door, with her arms stretched out, making a form of a cross. After a moment with tears in her eye, very quietly but audibly, she said, 
Why has no one ever told me about my Messiah before? Dear friends in Christ, we have a Messiah. Even more than that, we have a great high priest who stands at the right hand of God. Undoubtedly, this sacrifice, completed on the cross, suffices until the last day. But we are still sinful and spiritually weak. Therefore, he unceasingly represents us before the Father, interceding for us that such weakness and sin might not be charged to our record, rather that he would grant us the strength and power of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin. He knows our temptations and our sufferings. There's nothing we can ever face that Jesus has not already experienced. There is nothing we can ever suffer that Jesus not has suffered more for our salvation. Our high priest and king, Jesus brings us into the obedience of faith by which we live in his kingdom, now and forever. Amen. May the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.